I am Planta on the line in Vancouver, British Columbia at thecommentary.ca. Loren McEwen joins me now. She has just written a new book, Women of the Pandemic, Stories from the Front Lines of COVID-19. It's a great chronicle of the early days of the pandemic, and not just a look back, but a necessary view onto the roles that women have played in the year 2020 and beyond. We see the women who lead the public health authorities in Canada, as well as the nurses, doctors, personal support workers, cashiers, long haulers, cooks, and many others. We see in their work how it uh, also doesn't stop when their work hours end. There's overtime, as well as uh, the work outside of work, whether it's caring for children or parents or both, not to mention encountering hate, racism, as well as being grossly underpaid. These portraits of the women that Loren interviewed provide marvelous insight into the work that is important as well as undervalued. Will our idea of what a frontline worker is change as a result of the last 18 or more months? Will the token gestures of hero pay or 7 p.m. cheers result in lasting change? These are questions that are asked in the book as well as considered while reading the book. Women who have been impacted by the pandemic have been overrepresented negatively. That effect is something that's looked at in the book. It's necessary uh, we not only honor the women here, but also look at the lasting change that ought to result, like seeing women in leadership roles, as well as seeing the definition of leadership change. Loren McKeon is Deputy Editor of Reader's Digest Canada and the author of No More Nice Girls and F-Bomb, which she was first on the program with back in 2017. This new book is published by McClelland and Stewart. Please welcome back to the Plant Online program, Lorraine McKeon. Ms. McKeon, good morning. Hi, thank you. Thanks for joining us. Thanks um, for having me. So the, the, this book came together rather quickly, I guess faster than most books would. Um, when did you have the idea to write this book? Yes, the idea came around just pretty shortly after the pandemic was declared, and I certainly have never written a book this fast. I think, you know, I write a lot of magazine articles, mm-hmm. and even <laughs> they sometimes take longer than this. Um, so we started talking about the book um, in May, and I started writing it, and well, reporting it mm-hmm. in June. Yeah, and, and so because you're in Toronto, I know I, I was delighted as I was reading the book to, to see um, um, uh, people from this part of the world here in, in Vancouver. Um, how did you do those interviews? Well, obviously, you know, it was even strange in Toronto. I would normally, you know, meet people, but I couldn't do that. Uh, So everything was done over Zoom and or, you know, over the phone. And it was a very, um, you know, it was a new way of interviewing for me because in my other two books, I went and saw as many people as I could. You know, I did travel across the country if I could, if I was able to. And this time, you know, it was all over phone and over Zoom and trying to build those connections that way. And, you know, thank goodness for technology that I was able to do that, at least. Yeah, it, it really does read um, uh, as though um, you, you really established a connection with these women uh, as you were talking to them. And, and one can see that. I mean, it, it, a connection's a connection regardless of how it uh, comes together, I guess. But um, uh, you evoke a lot of, I mean, we can hear it in, as we're reading their quotes, for example, um, about how stressful or how worried or how grateful sometimes they are of, of, of whatever lot they, they have to pursue, say. 
Yeah, thank you for that. You know, I think that it, I really relied on the fact that these women were so generous with their Mm. time and so patient with my questions and really did open their lives to me um, and were vulnerable with me in those calls, you know, shared the challenges, the heartbreak, uh, the in a lot of cases, the devastating things going on in their lives, mm-hmm. on in their lives, whether it was, you know, PSW workers caring for people who were dying from COVID, mm-hmm. um, you know, mothers that were struggling to make ends meet, to kind of get through Zoom school, to just hold it together, you know, business owners who are in danger of losing their businesses. Um, so many stories about how women have fared through the pandemic, and um, I think that, you know, if, if I'm able to relay those stories well, it's because they were so open with me and they were so generous. Yeah, their generosity is the thing that struck me. I mean, I'll never get over that even after reading the book. Um, like we, we've all become, you know, sort of Twitter epidemiologists over the last year or so. And But mm-hmm. the, the chapter where you explain how vaccines work, I mean, that's one of the best things I've read in the last year in terms of, you know, um, how these things work. Thank you. Yes, and I, that, that was a lot of patience on the behalf of the people I spoke to who were developing those vaccines with me asking probably the same question in many different ways, yeah. you know, just trying to understand it myself and um, the, these women being so patient when I went back to them and said, okay, I'm explaining it like this. Did I get it right? You know, how, what's the simplest way we can explain this? Yeah. Um, because, you know, I'm not, I'm not a science journalist. Um, I don't have that background. My background is in writing about, you know, women and gender issues. Um, so, you know, if I can understand it, I think anyone can understand it, and that was the goal. Yeah. So, so the, the role of women in this pandemic, I mean, it's it's at once unique, you know, especially with some of the high-profile people that you uh, profile and that you talk about in the book, that you interview, um, women in leadership roles. At the same time, with... with um, jobs say on the front line uh, women have been overrepresented and have suffered the most um what i find just just enjoyable as i was reading the book was that you talked to to all sorts of of women and uh, with all sorts of jobs and across the country literally right yes and i wanted you know that was so intentional um on my behalf i had um a spreadsheet going uh-huh. when i started the book, and I was really challenging myself to think of the women whose stories we weren't hearing. And I think, you know, it is so important to hear about how women are faring on the front line, the medical front lines, you know, how doctors and nurses are faring. They have certainly experienced just a horrific, stressful, um, exhausting time that I think, um, you know, we need to hear about and we can't possibly imagine if we haven't been in hospitals. But you know, there are other people that make hospitals work, you know, cleaners, mm. people that provide the food. Yeah. Um, so I wanted to hear their stories. And then, you know, I wanted to hear the stories of, you know, how do they even get supplies? So I wanted to talk to truckers. And there are many women truckers who played a pivotal role during the pandemic and put themselves in danger. Mm-hmm. But then you start thinking, well, how are mothers faring? And then, you know, it just kind of goes on from there. And I think we really need to hear those stories that we haven't heard as much from and those women we haven't heard as much from. Um, because often they're the most vulnerable women, and I didn't, you know, I think it's really important that we don't lose their stories um, as we move toward recovery and as we move on from the pandemic. I think that, you know, the stories that we haven't heard as much from should be top of mind as we think about where we want to go next 
and you know how we want to build ourselves out of this pandemic. Yeah, that's that's one of the frustrating things um, th- that I was hearing over the last eighteen months or so was how the, the pandemic affected all of us and that we were all in this together. When it was clear very quickly that um, uh, women across the country were were, were facing hardship at a, at a you know at a greater number and and. Um, I, I was I was curious to know, Loren, when you talk to them and, and, and they would hear things like that or they would hear uh, about the concept of hero pay, for example, did, did, did they all think it was bunk? You know, a lot of, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think it became pretty clear pretty quickly that this idea of we're all in this together or the pandemic will be the great equalizer is, is a myth. Mm-hmm. You know, that didn't happen. And even among women, you know, not all women experience the pandemic differently. And I don't want to diminish anyone's experiences. Sure. I think people of all genders, obviously, you know, we've all kind of felt that we've all gone through the pandemic. Yeah. But certainly there are women who, you know, women of color, um, new Canadians, homeless women, you know, there are so many people that are on, um, that are living on the edges without the pandemic that were just pushed over. And a lot of them were women. We know that the statistics, you know, confirm that. And I think, you know, speaking to those women, of course, they were keenly aware of it. I spoke to one woman who was who worked in a meat processing factory, mm. and you know, is played such a key role in keeping everyone fed <laughs> during yep. the pandemic, and was putting herself in great danger because a lot of these factories did not have uh, proper safety measures when the pandemic started. We know that's where a lot of the outbreaks occurred mm-hmm. and continue to occur. And you know, as she told me, no one ever hears about us unless we're dead unless one of us died and that was like a like a gut punch and I think that there were so many women that are keenly aware of that and you know even women on the front lines of the medical and the hospitals who were called heroes you know they were grateful but also like saying we're not heroes (laughs) we're trying to do our job and we need resources to do the job so I think yeah, there's a lot of uh, tension around that rhetoric that we're all in it together. Yeah, the, the the idea of what an essential worker is, I think that's something that we need to mm-hmm. re, uh, rethink at least, um, even after the pandemic, right? Yeah, I think, you know, the pandemic didn't create a lot of these problems. And a lot mm-hmm. of these women would say that, you know, it wasn't like I was getting paid fair wages before. I had good working conditions before. Um, but it underscored you know, how terrible those working conditions are or how much they need fair pay and living wages, um, you know, how much they need paid sick leave, yeah. all of these things that um, we knew but didn't seem as urgent, um, you know, in a general public conversation have really um, become undeniable. And I think that, yes, like absolutely going forward, we need to think um how we treat our essential workers yeah. and what that means and what job protections they have and pay and we've seen it across the board from grocery store workers to PSWs and long-term care homes you know we've seen that the people that we rely the most on are often the people that are the most ill-treated as yeah. well. Yeah. You, you talked to a, a number of people here in Vancouver uh, one of them is uh, a hospital worker um, who told you um, that um, despite the risk, how grateful they were um, to be able to work. And, and you, you write um, of, of their dedication, and, and um, despite, as you, you just said, being underappreciated, um, 
they, they kept going into work despite the risk to themselves and their families. Um, and at the same time, you know, on the bus, she, she describes, you know, encountering hate, um, mm-hmm. getting confused for, for uh, someone who brought the disease over even. Yes. And, you know, she said, um, the woman I spoke to is Filipino, but mm-hmm. she said, you know, people mistook me for someone who was Chinese. And she said, like, even, you know, experiencing that, and we know that hate crimes have gone up right. exponentially. Um, she said, you know, it, it's scary to experience. It's scary to know that I'm on my way to my job to help people, you know, to keep people safe through the pandemic, to care for people. Yeah. Um, and she said it's scary to know that, you know, this has become so common. And I think that, you know, that is one of the things that I think we're finally talking about, um, you know, that has become something that we're starting to talk about, the anti-Asian hate um, and the hate crimes going up. But it flew under the radar for way too long. And, um you know, again, the pandemic didn't create racism, no. but um, it's certainly shown us how far we have to go when it comes to fighting it. There's a term in the book um, that you use, uh, she session, and mm-hmm. um, it talks about uh, women of color in t- uh, who are in business and, and how that hurt them a lot. Now, we've heard of grants and programs from from the federal government over the last year or so. Um, have have they helped at all? I mean, when, when you talk to, to some women who, who were, you know, about to start their business last year or, or um, you know, were doing well and then have struggled since, um, did, did these things come back, say? Yeah, I've spoken to, um, I think it depends. A lot of women business owners have fallen through the cracks because they're entrepreneurs, mm. um, you know, and maybe they don't run a big business and they haven't been able to access the same funding and payroll support that other businesses have. So that's one thing. Um, So that's one challenge that a lot of them have faced. And they've also, a lot of women have employees who are contractors, uh, so they're not full-time or part-time. And that excludes them from a lot of funding, too. And then, you know, I spoke to a lot of women of color who are business owners, maybe are, you know, sole business owners, entrepreneurs. um, And they've said, you know, we don't have the connections. We don't have the same connections um, that someone else might have who's maybe white, um, who's maybe male, who's maybe both of those things. Um, So, you know, they're already at a disadvantage when they're trying to find supports that are maybe outside of government support, too, that are organizational. So a lot of them have faced challenges. um, And no, they haven't found the support that they need. In fact, I spoke to one a business owner in Calgary who's a black woman mm-hmm. and you know she said if if I can get through without taking on another loan then I'm okay like I just don't want to take another loan I've tried to find grants I can't find anything I don't qualify for anything um, and I spoke to her in the summer and by the time I spoke to her again in the fall she had had to take on a loan to help her mm-hmm. business survive so in even more debt that's a very common story across the board yeah, the, um, the the women in leadership roles. I mean, across the country, we, we see them every day on on, on the news. Um, uh, Dr. Henry here in in, in mm-hmm. British Columbia, Dr. Hinshaw in Alberta, Dr. Tam and Dr. Davila in in uh, Central Canada, where, where where you're from, where where you are, mm-hmm. I should say. Um, what do you think? Um, because you write near the end of the book that that um, these women have have made mistakes, sure. 
um, but they didn't do worse than their their male counterparts, and and, and that's something you can take also around the world. You, you think of the the, the um, leader in New Zealand or, or um, mm-hmm. uh, Merkel in Germany, even. Um, I, I guess there are statistics that, that back that up, right? Yeah, we know that. Um, you know, there have been some studies done that have compared women-led countries with similar male-led countries, mm-hmm. you know, in terms of population and government and all that. And we've seen that women-led countries have fared better in terms of fatality rates, in terms of illness rates, and that's largely because, um, according to the studies that have been done, because their policies have put human life first, you know, have valued human life more as opposed to, say, the economy or rushing to open businesses. Um, they played it more cautiously and, you know, as a result of that, have actually fared better. And I think, you know, if there's any silver lining <laughs> to the pandemic. Um, you know, it's hard to find them, especially when we're still very much in the mucky, what feels like the middle of it still, mm-hmm. um, at least in Ontario, um, is that we've seen women leaders really excel and in a way that I didn't think was possible before the pandemic. Not that I don't think women leaders can mm-hmm, excel, mm-hmm. but I don't think they've been given the chance right. to, mm-hmm. you know, are the um, the prominence, are they've been celebrated in the same way. The book that I wrote before Women of Pandemic is called No More, no More Nice Girls, mm-hmm. and it looks at women in leadership, and it argues that we need more women in leadership, and this is why, and we need to expand our definition of leadership to include, um, you know, community-based leadership, um, collaborative leadership, vulnerable leadership, all of that stuff that we don't tend to see typically celebrated in leaders. Um, And it seems like a long way away until the pandemic. And now we've seen that a lot of the traits in the women that you mentioned Mm -hmm. um, in Canada have been vulnerable. They've admitted to their mistakes. They've cried on camera. Um, You know, they've changed their minds. Um, They've been really um, raw and full of emotion. And we've seen that connect with people, and we've seen them, you know, be collaborative and kind. You know, mm-hmm. the the mantra that we've seen come out about being kind. So mm-hmm. I think, you know, these women have shown us that they can lead, and we can lead differently, and we can be successful doing so. And that, if anything, <laughs> in this very horrible year plus, has given me um, inspiration and hope. Yeah. So you you do expect it to continue, right? I hope so. Yeah. I think you know they've opened the door. Um, to, you know, leadership and successful leadership. And I hope um, that it just opens further as yeah. we move into recovery. At the, at the same time, though, I mean, uh, these women in particular have, have um, uh, the, the, the sexism, the vitriol that we see online or elsewhere uh, directed at them, too. Um, uh, even racism at times with Dr. Tam and Dr. Davila. Mm-hmm. Um, what... Um, um, again, this goes to your point a moment ago about how um, these were not um, uniquely pandemic problems. These were, but they just came to the fore because of the pandemic, right? Yeah, I think you know the pandemic has really exposed us, <laughs> and it's made um, so many things that we like to, um, you know, as a society, as a mainstream society, uh, sweep under the rug. It, it's made it that we can't, but it's also um, of course the sexism has come out, you know, mm-hmm, in some ways. Mm-hmm. You know, of course it has because it existed before. It's one of the biggest hurdles that a lot of women leaders have to get over is the sexism that they face. Um, and now, you know, as we see them rise in terms of prominence and, you know, public um, 
stature, I think, to me, based just based on the work that I've done as a journalist mm-hmm. and the things that I write about, is not too surprising that we've seen um, the sexism try to push back because we always see that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that these leaders have been more celebrated than I would have expected, and I think that they have been in the past. So I'm hopeful we've, mm. we've um, nudged the dial a bit on that sexist backlash. Um, and, you know, some days I'm not hopeful when I read those comments, but, <laughs> right, yeah. but right now, you know, I, I am hopeful, and I hope that we'll continue to push it. There's some mar- marvelous stories in the book, too, of, of, of uh, women in, in various communities across this country who um, saw a problem and just did something that they could uh, do um, to, to help and have helped a lot of people. And, and um, the, the on because we've all been online this, this past year or so, uh, th- that's helped bring people together. I mean, you, not just in the Zoom way, but, you know, mm-hmm. uh, creating groups and hashtags on, on social media and, and marshalling support and, and, and helping one another. Uh, that must have been just fun to hear the stories of, of, of people doing something good in, in th- their own neck of the woods, say. Yeah, it's it's so, you know, we, we've talked about the, the challenges mm-hmm. that the pandemic has exposed and uh, the racism and the sexism, but I think, you know, it didn't, just bring out the worst in us. It also brought out the best in us. It yeah. also brought out that compassion and that kindness and that sense that, um, you know, I will do anything I can to help someone um, and I want to help other people. And I think that, um, you know, it is important to remember as many of those volunteers and those people that did, um, you know, do mask drives mm-hmm. or, um, you know, do pay it forward kind of. Um, you know, donations or sharing or, you know, donated their time, you know, whatever, you know, that people did, um, you know, they all mentioned that I wouldn't have to do this if we had the resources. So yeah. there, there is it still sort of, um, you know, there is that reality <laughs> side yeah. of it, um, you know, that a lot of these movements were born out of a lack of resources um, and, you know, or a slow response from maybe the government or the mm-hmm. people that have power to change these things. But the fact that women did step in and did yeah. show that initiative and that resilience is incredible, and I think we should um, celebrate that. Yeah, there's, there's one story in the book where um, uh, there was a woman who uh, couldn't make ends meet, and, and she, was, she was a week away from getting um, some... Uh, I guess a, a check or something, and, and yes. she didn't have enough money for food that day. And um, she reached out, asked for help, and um, she got, you know, the pizza was delivered about an hour later. And, and then yes. the, the, the heartbreaking thing is she phones back and, and she's worried about accepting all of this. Yeah, and yes, and it's, you know, part of the caremongering movement that yeah. just took the world by storm, really. Um, and I think that, you know, there's, when we talk about myths, certainly there's this myth that, you know, people are going to take advantage of CERB, they're going to take advantage mm-hmm. of people's kindness. And I think, you know, that's such BS mm-hmm. <laughs> in so mm-hmm. many ways because, you know, a lot of people feel very, like this woman, you know, she didn't know what to do with this kindness, right? She didn't know what to do with the generosity that it was giving her. She didn't know if it was okay to, um, 
you know, to take it all, she did call back and say, like, I'm still getting stuff, and yeah. I still take it. You know, and the answer was like, well, you, do you need it? And it was, yes, of course I need it. Um, then, you know, take it. That's what people want to give. And I think that, you know, if the pandemic has also opened up conversations about the need for universal basic income and yeah, about, yeah. you know, the need for things like this and um, how so many people were at such a disadvantage um, you know, because they lost their jobs suddenly. Um, a lot of women supporting families couldn't support their families. You know, we've seen that we we do need to do something on this, yeah. and it's not a matter of handouts. It's a matter of caring for the people in our community. Yeah, we, we had the, the issue come up here in British Columbia where um, um, the, the, the government decided to, to raise um, uh, r- rates for, for, um, for people that needed uh, help. And then uh, people who were on welfare were saying, hey, um, if, if that's uh, the, the basic income that one would need, how come we're not getting that? Mm-hmm. And it infuriated me as I was reading that, that story that I just referred to, um, that uh, here was a woman getting help, but it, it didn't last her the whole thing. If you're going to give someone help, you might as well let it last the whole month, right? And exactly. here she was a week out, and, and um, just how, you know, the, things like that need to change across the country. Yeah, and and that, I think, you know, when we talk about recovery and getting back to normal, Mm -hmm. it's these stories that I want us to remember, that normal wasn't so great. (laughs) And, you know, I think we've seen so much the ways in which it was not so great. And when we think about, you know, what new normal will look like, I hope it's not just a matter of masks in public and, you know, if we can hug again, I hope that, you know, we think about the most vulnerable people and how we we have seen the ways in which we failed them. and But we know the answers now more than ever in the ways in which we can stop failing them and start helping them. Yeah, I remember a, a while back when, when things were getting bad, not, not just uh, where you are in, in Ontario, but here in, in British Columbia as well, they talked about bringing back the 7 p.m. cheer. And um, I was just thinking to myself, well, I don't think that's what we really need. <laughs> You know, as, as as lovely as that is, as, as as it brings everyone together, I think there there you know there there are more important things yeah. to think about. You know, <laughs> yeah, I and mean, you know, I think you know, I get the temptation to think about things like restaurants. Sure, <laughs> and, you yeah. know, you know, we're we're so lonely. We've been through so much, but you know, um, that's not all of what recovery is or what it should be. Yeah. And I think that. Uh, we need to kind of remind ourselves that, especially those of us who have had the privilege, like me, of just working from home from mm. the pandemic and having a job and, um, you know, being okay. It's, you know, thinking about other people's pandemic experiences and realizing that they're so diverse and so vast. Yeah. So you, you mentioned earlier that you started the book about a year ago. Now, we're definitely not out of the woods yet. Um, I, I'm generally a pessimist, but, but I, I can't get over um, how far we've come in the last year. So, I mean, when you started this book, could you have imagined where we'd be a year from now? From then, I should say? No, I feel like we've packed like a decade for (laughs) one year. Um, So much has happened. And I remember, you know, starting these interviews in the summer where case counts were very low. Yeah. Um, And, you know, and, you know, speaking to the experts, the medical experts saying, you know, it's not going to stay this way. Be prepared for a second wave and a third wave. Yeah. But it seemed um, unimaginable 
in many ways, even though we knew it was coming, what it would look like to be in lockdown again and then again, you know, and to not have seen anyone for months and months and months. Mm -hmm. So I think, and, you know, and also to see, you know, frankly, um, some of our governments not listen Mm -hmm. in many cases to those women leaders (laughs) and make, you know, poor decisions that have extended the crises that have put more people in danger. So to think about, you know, where we'd be now, you know, we're starting to see um, some hope with vaccines, um, you know, and some hope with um, better decision-making. But, I mean, I can't even imagine what the next month will look like, (laughs) let alone having been able, um, you know, to predicted i remember sitting down and writing the epilogue and just thinking well we've approved back it was at the point where we had approved vaccines but even then i couldn't imagine um, because it's just been such a roller coaster indeed um this is such a very fine book and and it's a book that people should read because we need to uh remember and uh honor um these these very fine women um who have done uh, great work but it's it's a book too that i think we need to reread uh, every little, uh, every every so often, because I think we need to be reminded of of what we've all been through and and what what's been done. Congratulations, Loren, on this book, and continued good luck with it. Thank you so much. The book is called "Women of the Pandemic: Stories from the Front Lines of COVID-19." It is published by McClelland and Stewart. Its author, Loren McKeon, join me on the line from Toronto, in Vancouver. I'm Joseph Plato. <laughs>